0: It's September, what, 16th tonight? September 16th, 2015. The message tonight is Charuz, C-H-A-R-U-Z. It's a Hebrew word. Some in modern Hebrew would say more like Charez, but in ancient Hebrew, that last ending was a little different. Check this out. It means to rhyme, to preach, or to string pearls. Those are three radically different things, and yet there is kind of a relationship that you'll see. Now, when you teach something in the Word, if you start at the beginning and you work all the way to the end, very often when you get to the conclusion, people are like, "Uh, well, of course. You don't even realize what you picked up along the way. So for the sake of demonstration, I want to put a scripture on the screen. It'll be Matthew 21, 44. And uh, when it gets up there or when you get there in your Bible, say, there. So Matthew 21, 44. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. Have you ever tried to interpret that? It's the funniest thing. Charismatic, Pentecostals, free Christians... You know, they can come up with the craziest things. And usually it's something like, look, if you stumble over Jesus, it may break your heart. But if you wait until Jesus' crushing pressure comes upon you, then you're crushed. You know, it's really uh, nothing even remotely like that. But if you had to pass your paper in to, uh, to the front of the class tonight, if that's where you were, think about for a minute what you would say that you know for certain Jesus is saying with this scripture. Anybody so confident that you want to stand up right now and say, I know for sure that I've got this interpretation? Well, how about that? A hundred people here and nobody positive enough to stand up. This illustrates an issue. There are cultural forces at work within the word that sometimes take basic principles in another language And they're obscured when they're in hours. Anybody whose work has been in translation knows how difficult this can be. Sometimes a joke in another language is just not possible to be understood in uh, your native language. Um, And every once in a while you succeed in making a joke in a foreign country you never intended, right? That's how that works. Let's do this. We're going to start with a Hebrew history lesson, okay? And as we do this Hebrew history lesson... um, We're going to be picking up some building blocks, always working towards properly interpreting that scripture that we just looked at, but that is not even the point tonight. The point tonight is you're going to walk away with a new love, a new appreciation for the layers of depth in God's word. And if you ever thought that there was a verse you had already drained dry of all of its meaning, my goal tonight is to prove you absolutely Wrong, so that you will go back to the well of his word daily, looking for fresh inspiration, because I can assure you it's there. Let's put 2 Samuel 2 in verse 4 <laughs> on the screen. How about that? Matt, I'm breaking your equipment, man. My wife's out of town, and see? Okay, Second, ah, 2 Samuel 2, 4. The men of Judah came to Hebron, And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told uh, that it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, we go into another thing. My point here in 2 Samuel 2, 4 and 5 is really that David becomes king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Now David's about 30 years old when that happens. How many of you remember that David was anointed as a boy shepherd? So say, yes, I remember, pastor. Okay, so he's anointed as a boy shepherd, but he's 30 years old when he first begins to rule. And the place he's ruling at is Hebron. In 2 2 Samuel 5, in verse 3, we pick this up. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, The king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Israel. At this time, somewhere around 1,000 B.C., what is happening is there is a mini civil war. There's kind of a coup for power. David has been anointed king over the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom was still loyal to Saul. Saul had been removed by God but was still operating in power up prior to this david is now 37 and a half years old so anointed as a boy shepherd but not king over the southern kingdom till he's 30 not king over the united kingdom until he's 37 and a half years old somebody said that's a long time you want to hear a really cool thing david ruled over united israel for exactly 33 years there was a righteous king in Israel over all of Israel for exactly 33 years. In 2 Samuel 6 and verse 17, we see uh, David doing something very special. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. When David became king over all Israel... One of the first things that he does is he puts the glory of God, the uh, thing that symbolizes God's throne, inside of a portable structure called David's tabernacle. Now, that symbolizes so many beautiful things in our lives with joy and with sacrifice the ark of God has entered into the tent of your body. If you were in Christ, then Romans 8, 9 says His Spirit's in you. And if His Spirit's not in you, Romans 8, 9 says, you don't belong to Christ. One of the glories of the Christian life is that your body becomes the temple of the living God. Well, that was foreshadowed in 1,000 B.C. by David. By the time you get to 2 Samuel 7 and verse 11... Uh, We see what is called the Davidic Covenant. And uh, starting with, uh, "...I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name." and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Somebody say, be my son. son. It's God speaking. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, and then we move forward with some other things. There was a promise given to David that the rulership of Israel would be from his throne that that would last, and that he would have a son that God called his son. Now, the reason this is important to your history before we get going is if somebody showed up in the United States and they started talking about George Washington, there is a backstory that goes with George Washington. Uh, You might know uh, stories about him at Valley Forge. You might have even fanciful stories about him skipping rocks across the Potomac or chopping down cherry trees. There is, when you say the word George Washington, any number of associations that come to an American's mind, maybe chief of which is money, right? Well, when you say King David, certain things come to an Israeli's mind. Uh, I'd like to put just a couple things on the board for you. In that way, you don't miss this as we move forward because... One of them that everybody who's been through Sunday school will remember is that in 1 Samuel 16, um, David was not the choice of Samuel. He was not the choice of his father, Jesse. In fact, the people didn't get together and say, you know what, we want David. What, What happened in 1 Samuel 16? God pointed David out, but David had been rejected by his dad in what way was he rejected he wasn't even invited among the sons there were seven older brothers and when samuel comes and says look bring all your sons to me jesse david's dad jesse didn't think enough of david to even include him in that as time moves forward in another chapter you see david's brother eliab accusing david of having a wicked heart and even the prophet Samuel, the man who hears from God, he didn't even consider David until David showed up and was standing there and there was no alternative. Hey, look, you might be God's last choice, but you better do a first-class job. Amen? Amen? And sometimes men's last choice was God's first choice all along. Isn't that beautiful? So the very first thing that you would, might need to know about David is that he was rejected. Maybe another thing that you would want to know about David is how did he get the kingdom? What happened with Saul? Samuel shows up and Saul had been disobedient. This was 1 Samuel 15. Put 1 Samuel 15:23 on the screen. Check this verse out. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is Samuel speaking to Saul. And what Samuel is telling Saul just before David is anointed is your rejection of God's word is God's rejection of you. And there is a time at which Samuel is trying to leave and Saul grabs his garment and it tears. And Samuel turns around and tells Saul, the kingdom will be torn away from you. Just like this was torn. So how did David get the kingdom? David got the kingdom because it was taken from Saul. And why taken from Saul? Because Saul rejected God's word. That's an interesting thing because you could never mention King David without those events coming to the mind of the average Israeli. But there are other things that are there. We began this service today with Psalm 118. Turn with me to Psalm 118. This is such an important psalm that it is the end of what is called the Great Hallel. Uh, Great Hallel is a Hebrew phrase that means the very great praise. And three times a year, Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem for feast. All Jews, anywhere in the world. And on their way ascending to Jerusalem, they sang the Psalms. And they began in Psalm 113 and sang 113, 114, 115, 116, 117. And the very peak of their praise was Psalm 113 in 18. We do this song sometimes in church, and we call it the Great Hallel. What this would mean to you is from the time that you were old enough to walk, old enough to hear uh, praise songs and understand them, how early do our children begin to parrot back songs that they hear? I mean, how old's Emelin? Three. Somewhere between two and three, they're singing. Uh, We have video of Judah when he was a little boy singing, I'm a little teapot, and he could barely speak, and Gabriel singing about being a bumblebee, right? Early, early in life, we can do that. And you know what was on every child's mind? Listen to Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and He he answered me by setting me free. Now, let me ask you, when we see something that says, In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and He answered me by setting me free. Who is the I and who is the me? See, this is occurring during the life of David. So while David is the one actually speaking, every Israelite put themselves in David's shoes. When you read this, you're looking for a note somewhere to see who wrote the psalm. They didn't have to look for that note. They knew that this was David's story. So Psalm 118 that they sang three times a year at least as they're going up to Jerusalem also helped to shape their thoughts about David because he wrote it. Does that make sense? Okay. Does it make sense? Yes. Okay. Then let's do this. Skip down to about verse 17. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Is there an interesting issue with David having said that? I will not die but will live. Do you remember that in... Acts 2 when Peter is preaching he says brothers I can tell you confidently that David's grave is right here and then he points the people to Jesus. You remember that in 2 Peter when he's speaking about living stones or rather 1 Peter 2 when he's speaking about living stones he also quotes uh, David. This is an interesting thing. Watch. I will not die but will live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely but He has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. What did the Lord become for him? Not just a system of laws. Not just... Uh, religious speech, he was for him salvation. You know, when you say uh, religion in Israel today, the word is dot, and it's made of the ancient Hebrew letters that are dalit. It 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 is a a doorway in a house, and tav. A tav was the ancient sign of a, a t. It looks like a cross. When you want to say religion in Hebrew today, it has to do with the doorway of your house having a cross painted on it. Now, where did that happen? The Passover. You want to know what true religion is? It's when everything inside your house, everything that comes out of your house comes through the blood of the Lamb. Tell me that's not beautiful. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's think about this for just a second. When you read the stone the builders rejected, who is writing this? David. If we're going to go to the illusion of the first time, the people who are hearing this for the very first time, who do you think we're talking about as a stone that the builders rejected? It would have to be David. Now the point there being that David had not been chosen by the king of Israel as a successor. David had not been chosen by his parents as a successor. David was actually rejected. The stone the builders rejected became what? The capstone. In other words, Saul was supposed to be building the kingdom. Uh, Jesse was supposed to be building his family line. But the builders rejected David, and David became the ruling agent on the planet. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's almost like God loves the underdog. When you are thinking about this, and let us move forward just a little further, the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Whose eyes is it marvelous in? Who is our in the psalm? It's all of Israel. Israel did not choose David. David's parents did not choose David. Israel's king did not choose David. God chose David, but in the end, it was marvelous in the eyes of all of Israel. He's the greatest king in Israel's history. Are you following me here? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord Save us, O Lord, grant us success. Do you know how you would say that in Hebrew? O Lord, save us. It is Hosanna, Hosanna. Where have you heard that phrase before? Hosanna, Hosanna, Son of David, save us. Now, why might the Jews have been crying that out as Jesus was entering Jerusalem? Well, they had been singing Psalm 118. They had been singing about a rejected king who received the kingdom that God took from illegitimate leaders and put it in His hands. Tell me that's not beautiful. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, you won't see me again until you say this? The Lord is God. He has made His light shine upon us with bows in hand join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let's talk about some embedded principles that are there as soon as you mention the word David. Number one... He's rejected by his brothers, he's rejected by his father, and he's rejected by the leaders. Every Israelite knew that from about Immanuel's age on. You follow me? Next, the kingdom was taken from leaders like Saul who rejected or misused God's word. Next, David had been chosen by God, okay? He wasn't chosen by man. He was chosen by God. Let's pick up another embedded principle here just by mentioning David. I didn't read it to you, but you can read in 2 Samuel 8 that David was given victories against all of his enemies. The first few verses of 2 Samuel 8 and then around verse 14, it literally says he could lay down his enemies and every third length of the cord put them to death. The scripture says God gave David victory wherever he went. So in Israel's history, David was victorious against all. Not only was he victorious against all, think on this one. Oh, Ray, thank you for this the other night. (laughs) David was the greatest of all kings. Now watch this. In all Israel's history, David was the greatest of kings. David was actually, according to Psalm 118, the capstone. Does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? But there is a king who is not the king of subjects. He's the king of kings. (laughs) There is a king that Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my enemies until I make them a footstool for your feet. The greatest of all kings would have a son that was God's son, and he would be his king, the king of kings, And the Lord of Lords. As great as David was, we were looking for one even greater. Now, could you build some anticipation over, I don't know, a millennia? Looking for him over a millennia. Could you build some anticipation? Turn with me to Matthew 21. Say, there when you were there. Are you plugged in tonight? because this is about to get rapid-fire good, okay? And if I thought you were biblical slouches, if I thought you were looking for bumper sticker platitudes and nothing more, I wouldn't bore you with this, and I wouldn't waste my time with you. But since you are serious Bible students, I'm going to give you something good tonight. Look at uh, Matthew 21, and just for the sake of doing it, let's read verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, that's Hebrew, for save us quickly, save us now, save us and give us success. Hosanna to the son of... When they call him that, they have to have this in mind when they say David. They may not understand exactly what it means. They may be focused more on victorious against all then they are rejected by leaders. But they have to have this in mind because they couldn't say David without it being pregnant with other details, embedded details. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We sing this every year somewhere around Passover, right? An exciting, exciting song. Well, they did too. Now let us turn the page in Matthew 21 and pick up in verse 33. So many times in our Bibles, we're led astray by some of the things that are printed that are not in the text. Like if you read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, you would get the impression that the story is about the son because it's called the prodigal son. Of course, the story is really about the father. There's nothing unusual about a son who disobeys. All of us are sons who disobey. What is unusual is a father that is as merciful as that father was. Amen. This is another one. Your Bible probably says something like the parable of the tenants. This story is not about the tenants. This story is about the merciful landowner. <laughs> okay, it's about a landowner who would tolerate. You abusing not one servant or two servants, but all the way down to killing his son. That's that's what the story's about. But in any case, listen to another parable, verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he, In other words, he has a great deal of investment in it. He dug a wine press. He put a wall around it. He built a watchtower. You follow me? He's improved it greatly. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect its fruit. Now, what would you expect if you were the landowner? Fruit, right? It's your land. It was your investment. You rented it out to sharecroppers. They would get a share, but the lion's share belonged to you. You follow me? The tenant seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. If you were in the original audience and you heard that, you would gasp. You'd be thinking, no way. I mean, who would do that? It's like saying, I saw some people going to church, but uh, the priest beat one, stoned another, and dismembered the third. It would be so shocking to the audience that he would have their full attention because no... No landowner would tolerate this from tenants, and no tenants would be so bold as to do this. The tenant seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, before we move forward, if you've read this parable for years because of 2,000 years of commentary, you may have been trained to believe that, you know what? These, uh, These tenants, these sharecroppers, this is Israel. And Israel abused Jesus, and because Israel abused Jesus, the kingdom was taken from them and given to Gentiles. That's usually along the lines of what you hear. But you know what? The first audience, he's not speaking to Gentiles. The first audience, they have absolutely no concept of a Gentile church that would be born. You would have to rob it of all meaning to them to make it mean that. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus would have said it to them, but it wouldn't be applicable for another three or four hundred years. So the question is, what was in their mind? Listen to how they react. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crops at harvest time. Can you say that the people are offended at the parable? This ought to remind you of Nathan going to David, right? And he said, look, I want to tell you about a man that had only two two lambs, right? Just two little sheep. You remember how that happened? And David got so upset, he said, the man who did this deserves to die. And then Nathan said, you're the man. You remember? This is one of those kind of moments. Jesus has told them a parable and they've understood the intentions, but they've not understood the implications. And listen to how he redirects them. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Well, let me ask you, had they read that in the Scriptures? Of course they had. And who is it speaking about that you now know? David. (laughs) Somebody said Jesus, and you can't help it. He's speaking about Jesus. It can't be speaking about Jesus. It's a 1,000 years before Jesus was born, incarnated. It's, uh, it is true historically of David's life. Have you never read the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. They would be thinking about David at that moment. And along with David, they would be thinking David was rejected by his brothers, he was rejected by his father. He was rejected by the leaders, and the kingdom was taken from the leaders who were misusing God's word. And it was given to who? To David. David was chosen by God, David was victorious against all. David was the greatest of the kings, and David was a capstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes they would have understood that. They would be thinking about how the leaders of the time of David didn't see David for who he was, but God did. Now look at this next verse. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Who was the kingdom taken away from originally? Saul. And why? He misused God's word. And it was given to David because David would do everything the Lord told him to do. Acts 14 says that. Watch the reaction. Who who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. I'm going to come back and tell you what that means. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about... Why? Why did they know he was talking about them? because they had the kingdom now. The average Jew on the street was not in charge of Israel. The average Jewish peasant who Jesus healed in in a local assembly, he was not in charge of Israel. But the leaders of Israel were misusing God's word, and they were rejecting the son of David who was in their midst. And so the kingdom would be taken from the leaders of Israel and it would be given to a son of David. This is not about the rejection of the Jewish race and the inclusion of Gentiles. It's about the rejection of the present Jewish leadership. Do you follow me here? Two of you follow me. Okay. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom will be taken away from you, just like Saul, and given to a people who will produce its fruit, just like David. Now, who had a heart like God? David, and how do you get a heart like God? Through Jesus. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest Him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that Jesus was a prophet. Why didn't they kill Jesus right there? Because the people loved Him. Now let me ask you, isn't that a different view than we usually read the Scriptures with? Usually it's that the Jews rejected Jesus and so the Gentiles have now come to faith. That's not what this parable is teaching at all. That wouldn't be an issue in the church for another 30 years. Okay? It's teaching specifically that the Jewish leadership of their day was more like Saul than like David. And Jesus had come along as the son of David. Now let's take us to that scripture that I asked you if you could interpret. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but he on whom it falls will be crushed. I want to read you a passage from the Talmud. I just thought it would be fun to do it. If a stone falls on a pot, a clay pot, if a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. If a pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. In either case, woe to the pot. So it is with Israel. Whoever ventures to attack them receives his deserts on their account. To the Jewish nation, they saw David as an immovable rock. That if his father rejected him, it didn't matter why? Because God had chosen him. If his brothers rejected him, it didn't matter why? Because God had chosen him. If the present leadership of Israel rejected him, it didn't matter why? Because God had chosen him, and now Jesus is standing there, the son of David, saying, I am just like that stone. Whether you attack me or I attack you, you know what? I can't be overcome. Woe unto you. In Daniel 2, a rock was cut out of a mountain, and the rock filled the whole earth. Jesus is that rock embedded into this one passage, it is pregnant with so much meaning that when you read it, it seems um, a little bit like a riddle. And when they read it, it's obvious because they had David as the blueprint. Now, it's that that I want to talk to you about today. Because when we talk about preaching, we need our points neat. We need our points succinct. If they don't follow in rapid succession then something happens. The attention span of the people is strained. And never has that been more so true than today. If you read sermons that were written 200 years ago, it often takes 20 minutes to make one point and there are seven points in a sermon and they expect you to have the seventh point connect to the first and they didn't have any problem doing it. But today, our average sermons less than 30 minutes long because... Frankly, the pastors don't think very much of you. They think that you can watch a three-hour and 20-minute movie and put it together, but you could never listen to a sermon longer than 30 minutes and get more than one point. And they're worried that if they expect very much of you, that you won't come back. And then how will they feed themselves or drive around in the Mercedes or fly in their jets or buy their pimp suits or whatever it is that they have? The word of God is not like that though. I want to show you something. When God speaks from heaven and he speaks about his son, I want to show you what he does. And in order to do that, I need to cover a few scriptures with you. I'm going to divide our board here into four sections. I'll do that as best as I can. You like that word as best. It's like the thing you get a lawsuit over, right? Asbestos? <laughs> Okay. Okay. In our four sections of our board, I want to show you something. How many areas of the, the Bible are there in the Older Testament? Uh, put Luke 24, 27 on the screen. Uh, you stay where you're at because we're going to go to Older Testament scriptures. At the beginning, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses is the law. That's the Torah. The prophets are the Nevim in in Hebrew. And the scriptures are the Ketuvim, the writings. From the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, we get the word Tanakh for Hebrew Bible. When Jesus was explaining about himself to the men on the road to Emmaus, he started in the law... He moved to the prophets, and he finished in the writings. He quoted from the entire Bible about himself. That's a lot different than having a single point, uh, a funny joke to get people's attention, uh, a long rambling story to further illustrate uh, the one scripture that you gave, and then an offering. He quoted from the entirety of the word. I want to talk to you about the entirety of the Word and its beauty for a minute. Do you love the Word of God? Do you want to know more about the Word of God? Turn with me to the second Psalm. What we're going to do is we're going to read a few passages from the Bible. Uh, We're going to start here in the Ketuvim, the writings. And when we read them, we're simply going to put some major points that come out of the Psalm for you like what you could not miss when you were reading it. Is that fair enough? So in Psalm 2, starting in verse 1, Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, and against His anointed one. By the way, that is the phrase Messiah. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king. Somebody say, my king. king. On Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. What an amazing thing. God would be speaking to a man and tell the man that he was his father and the man was his son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Let's write down a few things that we might have gotten from Psalm 2 as embedded Details. Is that fair enough? Do you understand what I'm saying now? Yes. Embedded details? Number one, Psalm 2 speaks of people's resistance, doesn't it? But in spite of the resistance, the Lord establishes a king anyway, right? <laughs> Is that right? Uh, How about this? His king was on what holy hill? His king on Zion. Let's see, that's three of them. Why didn't we do five? Um, How about the fact that the king would be God's... (laughs) I mean, is that a stretch from this? I don't think so. How about the fact that he would inherit the nations? Do you get that out of that? When you, when you read, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends, say ends, yeah. ends of the earth, your possession. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth would be an inheritance. Does that make sense to you, what I've put here? Is that very controversial? I wouldn't think so. Go with me to Genesis 22. Let's let's pick something out of the Torah and see what we can gather. We won't read the whole chapter. It's 8.30 and, well... To be honest, we're just hitting our stride. How about this? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Did you know that's the first mention of the Hebrew word for love in the Bible? It's uh, the very first time it appears. Do you think that that would make a note uh, in somebody's mind that had memorized the Bible at age five, the first mention of love? Ahab it is. Ahab is one of those words where in Hebrew, if you want to say father, you say ab. And alf, the first letter where we get an A, means strength, strong, or leader. Abet, for where we get B, ab, means house, like Bethlehem, house of bread. Okay, Ab is a strong leader in a house. When you want to show love in Hebrew, you introduce the Hebrew letter Hey. This is, uh, represents the spirit of God or a revelation. When the strong leader in your house has a revelation in the center, hub, ahab, A-H-A-B, it is love. We were all supposed to learn love from our father being spirit-filled. That's where we're supposed to learn love from. In any case, then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Skip down to verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. How about verse 14, just to give us a sampling? So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. If you were trying to figure out in Genesis 22... Some of the things that may be embedded in it forever, I think we would have to start with a loved son, would we not? Maybe a second one would be a sacrifice on Moriah. Did you know that Moriah is the region of Golgotha? That's interesting, isn't it? By the way, it was three days' journey. Moriah, if you were curious. Um, how about a son bound to wood by his father? Would you get that from Genesis 22? Okay, what about, um, did, what kind of offering did he say that they were going to give? A burnt offering. In Hebrew, a burnt offering is an olah. If you wanted to look it up at Strong's number 5930, it means an offering that ascends to God. The kind of offering that they're going to give is one that will ascend to God. Let's just put burnt offering, though. Maybe the last thing that you would get is that on a particular mountain... In Israel, the Lord would provide Yahweh Yireh. Some people would say Jehovah Jireh. They would be wrong when they said it, but they do say that. Um, You know what? We've done a Ketuvim, a a psalm. We've done a portion of the Torah, uh, Genesis 22. Let's take a prophet, and we'll do it relatively quickly I believe that I can keep your attention because I think that you love the Word enough to do it. Uh, if you could watch, say, a series like Lost and not be lost, I, 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 expect, uh, I expect a lot of you. Let's, let's, let's just say that. Turn with me to Isaiah 42. When you get to Isaiah 42, say, Pastor, I'm there. Amen. Okay, let's take Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, what if you said, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Just from the first four verses there are some things we could gather. How about a chosen servant in whom God was well-pleased. Do you get that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How about uh, the Spirit of God would be on him? Do you see that in the very first verse? Yeah. How about justice to the nations? Do you see that? And... uh if we just wanted to summarize those next few verses, when you say he would not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets, he's meek. When you want to say um, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes, he's tenacious. When you say in him the islands will put their hope, he's obviously going to bring hope. I'm just going to put meek, tenacious, and hope. Fair enough? Now, let me ask you, when we say these things, would they be new to the Jewish race? The Jewish race at about the age five anybody in here got a five-year-old would begin memorizing the Torah. They, the first five books would be memorized. By the age 13, all Jews would be very familiar with the Navem and the writings. Not all could memorize it. About 10% of the population seemed to be able to memorize it. And after the age 13, about 1% of the population would have it completely memorized and learn the ways of a specific rabbi. But the reason that I say this is, do you have to tell your children what to do at a stop sign, or do they kind of pick it up without you explicitly saying it? My children knew that when you come to a green light, you go. When you come to a red light, you stop. When you come to a yellow light, you go really, really fast. I mean, they knew that right away. Uh, When Judah was just barely old enough to see over the dash, you know, he'd said, go faster, Daddy, go faster, right? And I, of course, abstained when Jennifer was in the car. Um, The reason that I say that is these concepts would be things that even... Children from elementary school to junior high would be pretty familiar with, but every adult would be familiar with in Israel. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew Levi was a Jew who had collected taxes until the Messiah came and spoke his name. And then he became an apostle. And when that happened, uh, his world was shaken. I want you to read with me in Matthew 3 about the baptism of Jesus. You ready? Starting in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Somebody say up out of the water. water. Doesn't sound like they had a little saucer and a seashell uh, throwing water at his head, huh? He had to come up out of the water, but I have no bone to pick with you if your mode of baptism is wrong. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. A voice from heaven said... Now, who do you suspect is speaking from heaven? If God speaks, people ought to listen, right? This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. What if when He says, This is my Son... He's actually referring to the embedded principles in Psalm 2. This is my son. Which son, Lord? Well, the one that the people will resist, but I will establish anyway. The one whose kingdom will go from Zion. The one who I call my son, the one who the ends of the earth would be its inheritance. Do you have a comma after this is my son? You have a comma there because this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The sentence structure has three specific statements in it. This is my son. What's the next one? Whom I love. love. Do you think maybe he could be referring to the embedded concepts in Genesis 22? What do you mean the one you love? Well, just like Abraham loved his son, the one who would be sacrificed on Moriah, the son that would be bound to the wood and be considered a burnt offering that the Lord Almighty would provide. You following me so far? Well, what about this last phrase? With him I am well pleased. Perhaps when he says, with him I am well pleased, we're speaking about Isaiah 42. The chosen servant... ...that was pleasing to the Lord... ...because God's spirit was on him. What just happened to Jesus at the baptism? The spirit descended on him. And he would bring justice to the nations... ...because he would be meek and tenacious... ...and bring the distant islands hope. This concept that God is using quotes from the prophet... ...I'm sorry, from the the writings, the law, and the prophets... ...the whole counsel of the word of God... And it strings pearls. These are pearls. By mentioning each one of these phrases, he's actually referring to everything else in their minds. That concept in Hebrew has a certain rhythm to it, if you will. A kind of preaching style to it, if you will. It is what we would call uh, cherez. It is a stringing of pearls. And it is a first century concept that says, you know what? I expect something of you. I expect you to know the Word of God. And so I'm going to refer to what you should already know and expect that you will act on it. See, God Himself not only quotes from the whole council of Word, but He puts the burden on the back of the people that they should know it. And why should they know it? Because it had been given to them. WHAT HAS BEEN GIVEN TO YOU, SAINTS? ARE WE REALLY GOING TO PUT UP WITH TEACHERS THAT EXPECT SO LITTLE OF US THAT THEY SPOON-FEED US THREE FILL IN THE BLANK QUESTIONS EVERY WEEK AND EXPECT THAT TO BE ENOUGH SPIRITUAL CALORIES TO CARRY US INTO BATTLE? Where, WHERE ARE THE PROPHETS CALLING YOU TO A HIGHER PLANE? WHERE ARE THE MEN OF GOD WHO ARE SAYING, GROW UP IN YOUR SALVATION? Do they think so little of you that they just want your money and your butt in a seat? Because I want your feet on a battlefield and your hands full of weapons of righteousness. If God Almighty, the first thing He says from the heavens in all three Gospels is to quote the writings, the law, and the prophets about his son and preach the gospel. Listen to the way this preaches the gospel. This is my son whom the people will resist, but I will establish my son who will reign from Zion and bring the ends of the earth in as an inheritance. I love him but will sacrifice him on Moriah. I will bind him to wood and give him as a burnt offering that the Lord has provided. I chose him and I am pleased with him. The Spirit of God is on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And he said it in a single sentence. Somebody say God is pretty wise. Let us go to Matthew 17 for a bonus round. Do you want a bonus round? This gets even better. Are you in Matthew 17? Put your finger there and now flip to Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, the most momentous event that has happened in Israel's history, period, is quite simply that Moses has given the people a revelation from God. And on the day that the revelation came from God, they heard his voice. They said it was like a trumpet. If you haven't listened to the message, uh, Shofar and Shalom, you should listen to that message. We are in the time period of the trumpets right now, waiting for the Day of Atonement to come. And I'm going to be honest, that's the kindest, gentlest Eric Stevens you'll ever hear, so relish it. Listen to the message more than once because we're coming out of retirement with conviction starting now. In Deuteronomy 18, the people heard God's voice and they said it sounded like a trumpet. They were terrified. They go to Moses and say, Look, we're scared that we're going to die. We want you to go hear from God for us. You all remember what I'm saying? And in Deuteronomy 18, pick up with me then in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the great assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. Do you get the picture? They were scared of God and wanted God to represent himself in a more familiar way an easier way a softer way the Lord said to me what they say is good I will raise up for them a prophet like you who is you Moses Moses. I will raise up a prophet like you Moses from among their brothers I will put my words in his mouth he will tell them everything say everything everything I command him, if anyone does not listen to my words, that that prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him into account. Well, let's play our our little role out here. From Deuteronomy 18, a prophet is coming. Actually, in history, he becomes known as the, not a, the prophet is coming. Okay, secondly, they request a less scary form. (laughs) Do you follow what I'm saying there? A less scary form. Three, God's word would be in his mouth. Four, Israel would be accountable to what he said. Somebody say accountable. Five, they would have to shema him. Shema is a Hebrew word. When we say it in Greek... Uh, I have that written in Mark. When we say to, to hear in the Greek language, it's a different word altogether. And it literally just means to perceive the sound. And uh, let's see where that note is. In the Greek language, when you say to hear, it is um, written, oh, no, don't have it. It is, it is literally just to perceive the sound. But in Hebrew, to say Shema means to hear what is said, to understand what is said, and to obey what is said. So um, it'd be more like we use as a colloquialism in the South, hey, you feel me? It'd be more like saying not only do you understand what I'm saying, do you get how serious it is? In other words, a Jewish mother that said Shema to her children, if they did not do what she had just told them to do, they would say, you didn't Shema. You didn't hear me. Oh, no, no. You must not have heard me. I mean, you listened to me, but you didn't hear me. You, you got me? Shema is actually another way to say faith when it comes down to it because by hearing the Word of God and obeying it, we show faith. Faith without works is faith. Dead. So when you hear something God says and you understand it enough to obey it, that is faith. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, uh, God says, Shema uh, Ya Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And if you really understand that, then you'll act like He's the only God. That's, that's the point. Well, in Deuteronomy 18, we come away with the idea that there is a prophet coming, that he'll be less scary than Sinai was, that God's word would be in his mouth, and that Israel would be accountable, and they had to shema him, listen and display faith in him. Go with me to Matthew 17, where we will close our message tonight. Say, there when there... In Matthew 17, verse 1, After six days Jesus took with Him Peter, James, John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There He was transfigured before them, His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light. Then Jesus, I'm sorry, just then, There appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, if I take too far of a tangent on this, uh, I risk ruining the point, but it is so good that it's hard not to at least mention it to you. Moses was the greatest that the law had to offer, he was a prophet, but what he did was he led the whole nation, he actually called them plagues and show judgment on the gods of Egypt. Um, The most famous of all of the prophets, Elijah, called fire from the skies. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you might see that there are two witnesses who return to the earth, and those witnesses have the power to call down plagues and fire. It's interesting to note that there are two witnesses on the mountain of transfiguration, two men, not angels, those two men are there because God, everything that He does is established by two or more witnesses. You can read that in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, and you can also see Paul quote it in 2 Corinthians 13:1. Those two witnesses, by the way, if you ever look at Luke 9, 30, they're at the transfiguration, just like they are here. If you look at Luke 24, 4, two men show up at the resurrection. Two men. Doesn't say angels, says men. If you ever read Acts in the first chapter in the tenth verse, there's two men at the ascension of Jesus too. Two nameless men, but if you had to guess, it's very possible that it was Moses and Elijah that witnessed the transfiguration, the resurrection, and the ascension and perhaps show up in the book of Revelation as two witnesses. How about that? Okay, that was bonus. Here comes the good part. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, What is the cloud associated with throughout the Older Testament? God, God His presence leading them. And now that cloud is surrounding them, and the voice is speaking. So who would you say is speaking? God. This is my Son, Psalm 2. Whom I love, Genesis 22. With him I am well pleased, Isaiah 42, 1. Shema him, listen to him, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Now when you think on this, what did God add in front of two heavenly witnesses in the last part of Jesus' ministry? He added faith in him, listen to him, Because that passage was pregnant with something. He's a prophet just like Moses. This is the form of God that you requested, a less scary form. God's word is in his mouth, and I told you when I agreed to send him, you would be held accountable for everything that he said. You would have to show faith in him, or I would cut you off from my people. At the baptism, He was announced as the Savior of the world through the law, the writings, and the prophets. And at the transfiguration, an additional passage was strung together like a pearl necklace of beads that was beautiful that said the crowning achievement is His word establishes you in my people or throws you out of my people. Let me ask you, have you heard understood, and obeyed God's Word? Can you say that? Can you say that you have taken His Word seriously enough that it is showing up in every area of your life? Because this is not a man who said this. This is God Almighty preaching the gospel about His Son from the heavens, and He is attesting to His own Bible by quoting The writings, the law, the prophets, and finishing again in the second giving. That's what Deuteronomy means, second giving of the law. The whole canon of Scripture is aimed at one thing, you consistently understanding the character of God. And he finishes his message from heaven with, you better listen to my son, or you will be called into account. So we finish our message today with that very phrase. Can you be said to Shema? There is a rhythm to the Scripture. There is a preaching in the Scripture. And there are pearls in the Scripture. Jesus said, do not cast your pearls before swine. Do you know why? A pig is not capable of understanding that when you say, this is my son, you really mean all of this. A pig is not going to look deeply enough into when you say, I love my son, you mean all of this. A pig is not going to say, when you say, well, pleased, you mean all of this. You know what a pig in religion is? The one that parrots back a few phrases to insulate themselves from hell, but never obeys or understands in a way that produces action. I say don't waste pearls on pigs. But my heart's desire today is that we would have that piggishness circumcised right out of our lives, cut right off of us, that we would hear the word of God and obey it, showing ourselves to be his disciples. Could you stand to your feet?